So uh, we're going to read again Galatians chapter 2 at verse 19 and 20. And here the apostle says, For I through the law am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. With our Bibles open, let us ask for God's blessing on us. Lord, we thank thee for this special portion in thy word and for the truth of thy word. And we pray that thou wouldst bless us today as we meditate on this portion. Give to us, we pray, that wisdom from thyself. We're weak in ourselves, but our strength is found in thee alone, the God that dost know our need and art acquaint with all our ways. And we cast ourselves afresh on thy mercy. We pray, Lord, for thy special blessing to be with us as we um, realize that we're worshiping the living God. We pray that we might do so in spirit and in truth. We pray this in our Savior's precious name. Amen. So in this uh, final portion of Galatians 2, there is this record of what Paul said to Peter when he confronted him for his compromise and error on the issue of, a, of a, how a sinner is justified. Because Peter had become afraid of the Judaizers, and he had withdrawn from the fellowship of the Gentile converts in the church at Antioch. The Judaizers were promoting this false theory that the Gentile converts had to embrace all the Jewish ceremonial system in order to be accepted by God. And if they wouldn't submit to that system, then they would be cut off from fellowship. That would mean that no Jew uh, should enter into communion with them, and there, were, there was this separation that was happening. And thus, under this intimidation by the Judaizers, Peter had withdrawn himself from the Gentile converts. But in doing so, he placed a question mark over the truth of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, without the works of the law. And consequently, Paul rebuked Peter and set him straight as these last verses um, show. In part of what he said to Peter, Paul appealed to his own experience of the gospel, as is seen in verse 20, where he says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, which expresses the same truth that's presented in verse 19, where he says, I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. The truth is that through Christ's perfect obedience to the law, Paul had been justified and was therefore delivered from all of the law's demands of keeping it perfectly because he was trusting in the perfect righteousness of Christ. Thus, he was dead to the law with regard to justification. It had no more claim over him. But at the same time, through Christ's work for him, 
he was enabled to live unto God and for his glory. Because he says that in verse 19, that I might live unto God. He means that when a man knows that the law's demands over him have all been satisfied and that he's been set free to live unto God and for God in his life. Paul is teaching that it was through the knowledge of him being justified and the assurance of peace with God that he had, because of his justification, he was enabled, therefore, to live each day unto God. The knowledge of who Christ is and what Christ has done and what the believer has in Christ form the basis on which the Christian life can be lived. And what Paul is actually teaching here in this reference of being alive unto God, that while he was dead to the law with regard to the demand for being perfectly justified, yet at the same time he was possessed of a true desire to obey the law of God with regard to his daily Christian life. In other words, we don't just cast aside the law and say, well, I'm under grace and I'm going to forget the law. No, you're going to obey God's law out of love, out of love to Christ and out of love for following Jesus. See, when he speaks of living unto God, Paul's essentially referring to sanctification, this life of obedience and holiness that we live each day. Thus, here again, we're we're shown that justification and sanctification are inseparable. They're always joined together. Justification is the basis of sanctification. When we know that the laws, all the laws, legal demands against us have been satisfied in Christ, then out of love for Christ and what he's done for us, we desire to obey him, to do his will, and to walk according to his law. Let's just turn over, first of all, to Romans chapter 6, because here the apostle is teaching the same, um, the same teaching in Romans 6, verse 9, where he says, Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. You see, Paul here is saying, he's speaking of Christ's perfect work for us in verses 9 and 10. Christ, he died unto sin once, in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. So he speaks of Christ's work, and then he follows with the verses that describe the results as far as we are concerned. Because we know of our freedom in Christ, we're gladly yielding ourselves and our lives to the Lord to do his will, to obey his law, and to love him. So in verse 20 of Galatians 2, 
Paul's main focus is on living the Christian life here in this world. And the heart of the verse has these words, the life which I now live in the flesh. He says, the life which I now live in the flesh, in the middle of the verse. What he's talking about there is he's talking about his daily earthly living that he lived and he pursued from the day that the Lord had saved him until the day he's taken up into glory. The word flesh obviously has various meanings in the New Testament. Sometimes it has an evil connotation, but then again, it's simply referring to the earthly existence and the life in this world. In Hebrews chapter 5, the, um, the apostle there in Hebrews 5 um, speaks about our Lord Jesus um, when he says in Hebrews 5, 7, and he, he says, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. So the word in the days of his flesh is a reference to Christ's life here in this world. So in our text, when Paul says, the life which I now live in the flesh is simply speaking of his physical life, his earthly sojourn here as a child of God. And the life that he lived unto God as one who was dead to the law through Christ, who had justified him and given him his spotless righteousness. You see, the person who is justified is to live unto God. From the time that they're brought into this new standing of acceptance with God through Christ, they're called to live unto God, and this is a vital fact that we want to look at this morning. In this verse, in this 20th verse, Paul speaks in a way on this manner that the believer is to live unto God during the course of their life, the life that he now lives in the flesh. So there are three aspects we want to consider about this living our lives unto God in the flesh. First of all, there's the miracle of living unto God. In the opening words of the text, Paul says in verse 19 that through Christ's satisfaction of the law, Paul was dead to the law's demands that laws demands for perfect obedience. But at the same time, he was alive unto God. Thus he says that while he had been crucified with Christ, his representative of Calvary, because he says, I, for I through the law am dead to the law, that I might live unto God, I am crucified with Christ. He's saying he's being crucified with Christ, who was his representative at Calvary. In other words, when Christ died, Paul's saying that although Christ was there at Calvary, he was there with him, and his people were there with him. Yet at the same time, he was alive. So he says, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless, I live. And then there are these words which underline the miracle of living unto God. He says, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Especially that phrase, Christ liveth in me. 
That's a miracle that's true of every believer. It's a reality that Christ is alive in his people, and it's characterized by this miraculous and supernatural power of God. Paul's writings especially are permeated with this truth that Christ lives in his people. Let's turn, first of all, to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. And in 2 Corinthians 13, the apostle there has the same teaching, 2 Corinthians 13 and verse number 5. Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. So that statement, know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you. Here is the reality of the believer. Christ is in his people, alive in his people. Let's also turn over to uh, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse number 27. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So here again, that statement, Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is that saying? Is that Christ Jesus is alive in his people as individuals. In their their life, he is alive and he is in them. And they have, as a result of this, a desire to be in heaven. And this isn't some hope that I, well, I hope that someday it may happen Uh, with a degree of uncertainty. No, this is absolute certainty. This is assurance that this is going to happen. It is so sure, it's as if we're already in glory. So Christ is in his people. And then um, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17 that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. And that statement in verse 317, Ephesians 3.17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. You see, this reference in our text is clear, it's wonderful, and it's a personal experience of the believer. When the apostle says, Christ liveth in me, he's talking about him as a personal experience that he had of Christ being in him and living in him. And we read of this truth from the perspective of the believer's experience, where it talks about them being in Christ or in him. But here is the miracle of living unto God. Christ is in each of his people, and they are in him, and thereby they're enabled to live unto God 
each day as they go through their earthly experience. So first of all, with regard to this miracle, let's look at the foundation of this miracle. The miracle of having Christ alive or living in his people rests on a foundation. And that foundation is the legal merit of Christ's work for them. In order to have Christ come into a sinful man's heart or into a sinful woman's heart and to live there, all of the scriptures prove that this is a reality that is a spiritual experience and results in a moral change within that person. But the teaching of scripture is always that God never performs this moral change unless there is a legal basis for doing this. This is always the divine order. The legal is the basis of the moral change. So the legal or the judicial basis must be laid down before the Lord will enter any man's heart and perform this moral or spiritual change that he needs. In other words, divine justice must be satisfied before divine grace enters the soul of a sinner. And all the legal demands of the law must be met before Christ will enter a sinner's soul and live there. Now there's the, let's look at it, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 17. Therefore, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 is a very important verse because here is the moral and the spiritual change or the miracle that takes place. Especially the words where it says, all things are become new. The reference is to the entire moral, spiritual change wrought in the heart and the soul of the believer. And this this work that's wrought in the heart of the believer is the miracle of Christ dwelling in them. If you look at verse 18, it says, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. But especially, all things are of God. You see, the miraculous truth, this miracle of grace in the soul, is in view when it says, all things. It is the work of God in the heart. Salvation is of the Lord. It's not the work of men. It's the work of God that's going to change the heart and the soul. And Christ here speaks about living in the soul. You see, it's it's followed by the words there, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. In other words, God hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. Here it is. The miracle of grace in the heart rests upon 
the finished work of Jesus Christ. It rests upon what Christ has done for his people in Calvary. You see, if you go to verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 5, it's stating there about who Christ is in his perfection and what he's done for us. Because it says there, For he that is God hath made him, that is Christ Jesus, to be sin for us. Now that statement, it's more than the sin bearer. You see, Christ became sin for his people. He became one who was condemned, who was guilty, and he was treated as one who was guilty and condemned. That when Christ was on Calvary's cross, he was made sin for us. That's what this verse is telling us. And that's, I, I know we can't comprehend the depth of this, but we have to state it because it's revealed in Scripture. That is why God forsook his only begotten son on Calvary's accursed tree. He forsook him. Remember, Christ cried that cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because he had been made sin. And God, who is infinitely holy, cannot look on sin. And here is Christ, more than just the sin bearer, he became sin. But you notice, it says, he became sin for us. See, that is individuals. That is individuals, that is you and me, when we are in Christ, Christ was made sin for us as individuals, not just for humanity. Many people talk about universalism, that Christ came to save the world. No, no, he came to save individuals. He came to save you and me. And do we know that by experience? Have we laid hold on that truth by our personal experience? And the result is not some maybe thing. Because when it says that Christ knew no sin, you see, he's perfect, he's holy. At the same time, he was made sin, and yet he's perfectly holy. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What that's stating is that the imputed righteousness of Christ is given to us. So that God sees us as being perfectly righteous, as never having broken his law, as, and not only that, but having kept all the requirements of his law. Many people speak about that verse, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, a double imputation, the imputation of the sin of his people on Christ and the imputation of his righteousness to us. You see, it's not enough to, as it were, just wipe out the sin. No, you need more than your sin dealt with. In order to stand before God, you need to have a perfect God righteousness. And the only way you're ever going to have that is by the imputed righteousness of Christ being given to you. That is the miracle 
You see, the sense that Christ took our sin was reckoned to be guilty, that we in turn will be reckoned to be righteous. You see, these verses give the clear teaching that it is Christ's work for us as our sin bearer and substitute that is the basis of his work in us. And then let's consider the fact of this miracle. Paul says, Christ liveth in me. He states the fact of this miracle of Christ living in his people, for it's a fact, it's a reality, that by his spirit, Christ lives in his people. Here's Christ, the God-man, and where is he? He's ascended up into heaven. He's seated in a place of authority and power. And he is there to represent his people. But at the same time, he sent his spirit to dwell in the hearts of his people. When Christ was here, he said, it is better for you that I go away. Because we would say, wouldn't it be better if Christ was with us in person this morning, sitting here, worshiping with us? Would that be better? The answer is no. It's better that Christ is where he is this morning in glory. And the reason is, because when Christ said, it's better for you that I go away, because he says, I'm going to send a paraclete, one like myself, one who comes alongside in your difficulty, in your need, one who is exactly like me, the Holy Spirit. And he's going to be there with you. And he's going to be with every one of God's people throughout the whole world simultaneously. You see, this is the reality that Christ is speaking of here. You see, Christ, by his Spirit, lives in his people. And by Christ has sent his Spirit to dwell in the hearts of his people. In that that great chapter, we have to turn there again, Romans 8, verse 9, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. You see, that is speaking about the indwelling of the Spirit. And it's a proof of being a child of God and belonging to Christ Jesus and Christ being in you. This is the proof. And you notice in that the interchange between Christ and the Spirit. Verse 9 refers to the Spirit of God or of the Spirit of Christ dwelling in the believer. And then verse 10 refers to Christ being in the believer. You see, the idea there, and, and, and you have to look for this uh, in your reading, but it's what I was talking about last week a bit about how that they always work in perfect unison. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are always in perfect unison. Look for the Trinity, is what I'm saying. Look for that, because it's revealed there in the truth. And in that verse, in Romans 8, 9, and 10, you have the triune God. You have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all working together. And what is it? 
They're in his people, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. There it is, all three working together in the believer. What a thought that is, to think that it is not just the Holy Spirit, but that it's God the Father and God the Son and the Holy Spirit that are living and dwelling in the heart of the child of God. What an amazing miracle this is. Do we grasp what is being taught here? Let's look at John 3. Sorry, 1 John chapter 3, verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commanded. And then in verse 24, And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him, see there's the both, and hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. The Spirit of Christ dwelling in the hearts of God's people. We're essentially taught that God is dwelling in his people by his Spirit. What a What a truth this is. What a reality that both God and Christ dwell in the saints by the Spirit. And this miracle of the Holy Spirit being a divine person possesses that omnipresence so that Christ will dwell with all of his people simultaneously. In Acts 9, we have the um, Acts 9.31, and here... um, The statement is, Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified. And then that statement, And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. So it wasn't just one church. It's all the churches. And we can say all the churches around the world today are able to walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost at the same time and enjoy this consolation, this having the Spirit of Christ in them. It's interesting that that word uh, comfort in Acts 9.31 is very similar to the title given by Christ about the Holy Spirit in John 14, where um, in John 14, where Christ speaks about his Spirit in John 14, verse 16, he says in verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. By the way, that is a verse, John 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments, that many professing Christians forget. And it's such a simple thing. And it seems so basic. But what Christ is saying in John 14, 15 is, if you know what I've done for you, if you love me and what I have done for you, you will keep my commandments. Not out of some well, I'm going to mark it down 
and I'm going to have the tick box and have it all, I've kept this commandment and I've kept that commandment. No, no. It's out of motivated, out of love for Christ. You're going to love his law. You're going to keep his law. And then what does he say? And I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter. There's that word, there's that paraclete. That he may abide with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. What a clear teaching. Christ living in his people by his spirit. Secondly, Let's look at the means of living unto God. So the words in the text, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. The original text shows that the Son of God was the object of Paul's faith. So it could be read, I live by faith in the Son of God. In the Son of God. Faith always has an object. And the object of our faith is Jesus Christ. And let's be crystal clear here that faith is shown here to be an instrument. So the literal wording is, in faith or by faith I live. The language means and speaks of faith being an instrument. And this is the essence of faith. Faith is the vehicle by which a believer savingly rests in Christ and what he's done for us. It's the channel or the conduit by which the believer receives from Christ the graces and the benefits of the Savior's perfect finished work. Hebrews 11 is the chapter on the heroes of faith. And in the chapter, in Hebrews 11, the, the apostle there says, he speaks about faith as the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And then he goes on to say, through faith, verse 3, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Now, this is very fundamental truth. Do you believe in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Do you believe Genesis 1-1? The only way that we can believe in Genesis 1-1 is by faith, is what it's saying here. Yesterday I was over at Indigo and went to the section with the Bibles, and there's... You know, I was looking at the various Bibles, and it's, it's always nice to be able to see all the Bibles that are for sale in a, what I call, consider a secular bookstore. Um, but there's this book that caught my eye, and it was entitled, 101 Myths of the Bible. And the man, obviously, is an atheist, but he is here to prove that the Bible is nothing more than a series of historical myths and false teachings that have been derived over the centuries and, and various people have handed them down and we've got ourselves now a compilation 
of myths. And he goes through, and it's first one, the first myth of the 101 myths that he talks about in the Bible was Genesis 1-1. And it is absolutely proof. If Genesis 1-1 is a myth, then everything else to the end of Revelation cannot be relied on. But if Genesis 1-1 is truth, and if it is something that we believe because of faith that is given to us as a gift from God, then everything from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation is absolutely true. You see, people who deny Genesis 1-1 are going to stand and give an account And where are you today? You see, where are you with regard to your conviction, with regard to the creation of man, the fall of man, and God's way of redemption? Do you believe in Genesis 1-1 that in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth? By faith, Hebrews 11 goes on, and it talks about all the exploits of the saints of God. And it's by faith Abel, by faith Enoch, through faith, by faith Noah, by faith Abraham. You see, it's all through faith Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed. All of these truths that are here are all by faith or in faith. And the key throughout the chapter is that God gives sinners faith. Faith is a divine gift. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. He that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And we also know from Ephesians 2.8, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You see, even the faith that we, whereby we exercise that belief and trust in Jesus Christ, whereby we cast ourselves on his mercy, is in itself a gift from God and is supernatural. It's a miraculous gift that enables a believer to not only believe the revelation of God, but to believe that Christ Jesus is the Savior of sinners. And he's more than the Savior of sinners. He's the Savior of my sin. He is my Savior. You see, it's a personal thing. And that faith is that miraculous gift that enables the believer to lay hold and trust in Christ and live each day unto God. Therefore, the Christian life is lived by faith in Christ. So Paul's words here give us the secret of living unto God or living the Christian life. It's by faith in Christ. Many confuse believers by telling them about a series of principles that they have to obey and rules that they have to follow. 
Now it's true. It's true that there are biblical principles that are to be obeyed. But in order to obey and implement them in our lives, we have to exercise faith in Christ Jesus. Because in Hebrews 12, in the, in the chapter right, right after the heroes of faith, the apostle there says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. So all of these believers and saints of God who've gone before, we're, we're, it's, it's the, the idea, you know, we're surrounded with all of this testimony. And what does he say? Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now, he's talking about living the Christian life, but he compares it to a race, to running a race. I used to be part of the cross-country running team when I was in school. I, I, I loved running. And, um, and I would run, you know, cross-country running is always challenging. And there was this race every year where they would, as they say, separate the men from the boys. And it was a, it was a race that would take us through Earl Bales Park. Well, Earl Bales Park in Toronto is a ski hill. And what do they have just before the finish line? The ski hill. So they take you all through the park, and then you come up the ski hill, and then make a final dash to the finish line. Well, let me tell you, after you've run like 10K, and then you face this ski hill, you think, well, at least I used to think, of this verse. Because you don't want to have one extra ounce on you. So you had the lightest running shoes and the lightest shorts and the lightest top you could, you know, with your number on it or whatever. And the point is, is that this is the same idea, what the apostle's saying here. He says, lay aside all the extra baggage of your life and let us run with patience the race that is set before us looking unto Jesus. Here's the object of our faith, looking unto Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Is there going to be challenges like that ski hill in our lives? Is there going to be mountains of difficulty? You bet. And some of those are going to face, each one of us, every single one of us are going to face challenges and difficulties. And they're going to be varied. But God gives grace because he is both the author and the finisher of our faith. In other words, it's guaranteed that his people are going to be with him in glory, but we're going to have to face challenges in our daily lives. May God, you see, we, we enter into the Christian life by faith in Christ, then we're to live, we're to run the race, and we're to live each day by faith in Christ. So faith is the means. Faith, by faith, the believer draws from Christ what he needs to sustain and strengthen him in order to live unto God each day. So faith is the means 
by which the believer draws from Christ the blessing and the benefits that Christ has secured for his people by his finished work on their behalf. Christ is the mediator who died to procure for his people all of the blessings, all of the covenant blessings. Let's look at that. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 4. To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also as living stones or as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. See, Christ is the living stone, and he's building a building. And you and I are stones in that building. I remember hearing this sermon on hypocrisy and hypocrites. And he described hypocrites as the scaffolding used in construction. When you're building a building and the stonemason is building the building and putting all the stones in place, he has to have scaffolding and he's fitting the stone and he's chipping it and making it fit to be in place. But then when the building is finished, the scaffolding is taken down and in many cases, the scaffolding is thrown into the fire because it's disposed of. Hypocrisy and hypocrites are used by God as the scaffolding in his building. I don't want to be among the scaffolding. I want to be a living stone, one of the lively stones that's said here, that's placed in the temple of God, that is used by God and placed by him in his service for time and eternity. That is what is being spoken of. You see, where are you today? Where are you? Christ is the living head, and his whole body and his people receive all the spiritual nourishment they need. They they get from him all that they need each day. And how do they do it? Prayer, reading his word, feeding on his truths, and partaking in the New Testament sacraments. The means of grace, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are the means of grace that God uses. Prayer, reading the word, meditation on his word, and partaking of the sacraments are the means of grace. Now, finally and briefly, the motivation for living unto God. The final words of our text, Paul says, The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the motivation. Christ Jesus loves us as individuals. He knows you. He knows all about you. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your failures. He knows all about your sin. He knows all about you. But he loves you. You see, this is something that we have to understand. Christ did not just come to save a people and bring them to glory which is true, he came to save individuals. He came to save you. And when the apostle says he loved me and gave himself for me, 
in that word me, put your name there. You see, he loved James Ian Fraser. He loved me. And he gave himself for James Ian Fraser. Can you put your name there? You see, if you can't put your name there, and you don't know that by experience, then you need to pray that God would work in your heart and that he would draw you to himself. You see, you need to know that statement. You need to be able to put your name in that statement, in that text. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, who loved me and gave himself for me. There's motivation. It's obvious Paul expresses this motivation that he felt with regard to living unto God. You see, in other words, what he's saying here is he could not do anything else. In light of all that Christ had done for him, he could not do anything else. Christ's love for his people is the motivation to live unto God each day. Now, Christ's love is personal. He loves us as individuals. Paul could say, he loved me. Christ knew and loved the apostle. And Paul, remember Saul of Tarsus, who was he? He was an enemy. He hated the people of God. He hated the things of God. As a matter of fact, he was happy when he imprisoned the people of God. You're going to encounter people just like the Apostle Paul. People who hate God, hate his word, hate anything to do. The idea of spending a Sunday in the house of God. Well, Christ's love motivates us to love him, to worship him, to be living for him. And it's all, not only personal, but it's persuasive. It says, he gave himself for me. You see, we're persuaded of his love by thinking about his sacrifice in our place and all that it has brought to us, all the benefits, all the privileges of the children of God. He's adopted us into his family. He's made us heirs, not only heirs, he's made us joint heirs with Christ. Now think of this, firstborn rights. That's the place that his people have. They've been given firstborn rights. And then it's not only personal and persuasive, but it's perpetual. You see, Christ says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14, it tells us the apostle there in writing to the church in Corinth says, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves. 
but unto him which died for them and rose again. You see, we're living in a society that is so taken up with self. All you hear is, I, I, I was amazed. We're standing at the, at the edge of the Grand Canyon, like literally inches away from the precipice, and there's people taking selfies. They're standing inches away from eternity, inches away from facing God. And all they're concerned about was making sure that the light was right on their face and that they had the perfect background and the perfect angle. They're so taken up with self. And you may be taken up with self today. You may be thinking only about yourself and my needs and what is all about me. But what did the apostle say there? He says, and they died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves. Underline that word not. It's not about self. It's not about you. It's not about me. It never has been, never will be. It's about Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And may we always be living with that in view that Jesus Christ has died for us as individuals. Can we say with the apostle, he loved me and gave himself for me. May God bless this meditation on his word. Let us pray. Lord, we thank thee for thy word. We thank thee for the truth of thy word. We pray for thy blessing upon us. We pray that it's right upon our hearts. Free us, we pray, from our own righteousness. Help us to stand in the perfect righteousness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that thou wouldst forgive graciously anything that has been said amiss. And we pray that thou wouldst work in the hearts of those who are strangers to grace and to God, and draw them savingly to thyself. That we would be able to each one to say, He loved me and gave himself for me. We pray this in our Savior's precious name. Amen.